Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication. And Sister Amy, thank you so very much for that beautiful rendition of that Chris Tomlin, How Great Is Our God. One of my favorite songs, I'm sure it is, of many here um, today. It's great to have the privilege to stand before you and open up the Word of God. And we are going to continue in the letter that Peter has written in 1 Peter in chapter 4. And I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to chapter 4. <clears throat> we are children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received the atonement of our sins we have been forgiven of our sins by the wonderful grace of God. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are part of the eternal kingdom of God. We are kingdom citizens. However, we must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to embrace, to fully embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. It's easier said than done. But it's the truth. We cannot fully and effectively live as kingdom citizens until through the help and the grace and the power of the Spirit of God, we can rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency. And we miss so many blessings and opportunities because we don't. Peter's challenging first century Christians to consider who they are. Not just Jews by background or Gentiles by background or Roman citizens by national affiliation. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God and through their faith in the Son of God, they are citizens right now of heaven. And I'm sure for many of them that was a hard thing to grasp just as it is for you and me. How many of us get up in the morning with the awareness that I'm a child of God. I am a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God. I am a joint heir with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's the truth. Before we launch in at chapter 4 verse 7... Just a quick recap as we consider the first six verses that I preached on a couple of weeks ago. But it's important that we remember where Peter started in chapter 4. He, he is reminding us that because of the ultimate victory that Jesus Christ has won through his own personal suffering. And please understand when we talk about the suffering of Christ, we're not just talking about the beatings he endured and the thorn crushed down upon his skull. We're not just talking about the scourging and the torturous treatment on a cross. We're also talking about his death, his physical death. But you see, through his suffering, true believers inherit a wonderful gift, and that is eternal life. And because of his suffering, Peter says, we should be willing to suffer. Whatever may come our way as a result of intentionally rejecting a life of sin, 
even when those who don't understand will ostracize us and may uh, persecute us or even execute us. Peter ends up those first six verses telling us that for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Brothers and sisters in the Lord who have died, some of them because of their faith, the gospel had been preached to them and because the gospel had been preached to them, they would live according to God in the Spirit. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. As we begin in verse 7, chapter 4, Peter begins with an interesting phrase. Depending upon the translation that you have, I'm reading the New King James translation, but he begins verse 7, but, but the end of all things is at hand. In other words, we're in the last days. Now Peter's writing that to the first century Christians, but guess what? He's saying that to you and me in the 21st century. We are in the last days. You say, well, preacher, how can they be in the last days and we be in the last days and there's near about 2,000 years separating us? I'll tell you how. Because the end of all things started when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to reveal the marvelous kingdom of God and to demonstrate the power of the, the glory of God as the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And then at that time, in the fullness of time, He gave His life died on a cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. His body lay there for three days. And on the third day, He arose. He was resurrected, fully alive, in a glorified body, demonstrating the power He had over sin, over death, over the grave. And because we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we too share in that glorious resurrection assurance. Because the Lord told us in John chapter 11, he who believes in me, even though he will die, he will live. Hallelujah. And then after some 40 days following his resurrection, as Jesus presented himself to many, and they witnessed him and heard him and touched him and beheld him. After about 40 days, he ascended in the clouds to the right hand of God the Father, where he is even now interceding for your sins and my sins. And Peter is saying, because Christ has come and died, and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, then you might say that God's eschatological time clock began to tick the last days. Those Christians at that time were living in those last days, and the last days simply says, there's nothing left to be done on earth to, to complete God's timetable. There's nothing else to be done before Jesus comes again. The next thing that will happen in God's great redemptive plan is Jesus is coming again. Those Christians believe that. Paul wrote about it. Jesus spoke about it. 
And Peter is reiterating, in the end, because we're in these, the end of times, if you will, as he puts it there. But the end of time, all things is at hand. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, something ought to happen. You know, I remember back in the 70s, and it doesn't seem that long ago, but it was. But I remember in the decade of the 70s, I know some of you younger people are thinking, I wasn't even born. This guy's ancient. But anyway, I was just a very young person. But on the heels of the, of, of, of the great Jesus movement, you may recall the hippies got fired up for Jesus, but it wasn't just the hippies. They were, this is the, the, the dawn of, of, of modern, uh, of, of uh, contemporary Christianity, if you will. Uh, Christian worship was changed. Christian music was changed. Uh, and, and, and there was a great emphasis on the teaching of the Word of God. I think about Chuck Smith, who's going to be with the Lord. But a lot of this took place out in California. That was a great, it, there was almost like another spiritual awakening occurring in America Focusing on young people who were realizing that there's more to life, having come through the turbulent 60s and realizing there's got to be more to life. I mean, the country's embroiled in all kinds of revolts and rebellions and civil rights marches and riots and, and were, were caught up in Vietnam. And, 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 and young people on college campuses were beginning to say, wait, isn't there more to life? And hallelujah, some of them discovered Jesus. And there was a great sweeping movement that focused on putting a person's faith and trust in Jesus that was studying the word of God. So the Jesus movement, you know, consumed the early 70s. But then on the heels of that, interestingly enough, there was, there emerged a real strong emphasis upon eschatology. There was great interest in the end of time, the coming of Christ, the rapture and things like that. And some of those of you who were around and, and remember you may recall that there were some books and some movies that came out focusing on the rapture. I remember distinctly sitting in church and watching a big old 16 millimeter projector put up there on the screen. You know, that the movie uh, A Thief in the Night and A Distant Thunder. And we were all charged up and excited with this idea of the coming of Christ and, 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 and the rapture and all of that. And this continued on into the 80s and, and in turn of the 90s, you may recall, there came the, the Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins series that focused on the rapture and called, entitled Left Behind. There's great fervor and interest in focusing upon the end times. And, and people were trying to plot dates. And I remember uh, there was a book that came out. Uh, in fact, I think it was titled 1988. And some of you may remember. There was a lot of fervor. You know, somehow somebody suddenly discovered this, this ancient uh, Hebrew this, uh, uh, system of, 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 of mathematics that you could work out and calculate when Jesus was coming again. The end of time was going to... And, and so everybody, as, and they gave the date in 1988. I remember churches were beginning. To, uh, we had people coming to church that never came before. And, you know, as the clock was ticking down, everybody was getting anxious. And people talked about quitting their jobs and, you know, and doing stuff like that. And, and the date came and it left. And Jesus didn't come. You notice that Peter is not saying to the first century Christians, okay, the end of all things is at hand. Go out there and quit your job and, and just wait because, you know, you know, just get focused on trying to pinpoint a date when Jesus is coming and, and all of that. No, that's not what he's saying. 
When he begins into the next verses, he starts with, therefore. There, so knowing that at any minute, any day, Christ could come again. What should we do? How should we live? Some of you may be disappointed because Peter says, Christians must exhibit an attitude of anticipation. It doesn't mean that you stop working. It doesn't mean you quit your job. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3 and verse 11, Peter, I mean, uh, Paul chastised members of that church because consumed with the thought that Jesus could come at any minute, they just quit the jobs. They stopped working. They were just idle, busy bodies going around saying, you know, mooching off everybody else, thinking any day now Jesus is coming. And Paul said, you get back to work. Don't be sitting around looking up into the sky. Go on with your life. We don't need to be obsessed with date setting and looking for signs, but rather live daily in anticipation of his return. Should Jesus come today, this moment, before I finish this message, or before this sun, the sun sets on this day, if should Jesus come, are you ready? Are you ready to face him? How will he find the state of your life? Is it something that would please him? Is it something he would congratulate you? Is it something he would be proud or would you be hanging your head in shame? Peter says, we must exhibit an attitude of anticipation, expectancy. And the way that we can live with that sense of confident anticipation is to, uh, to be enhanced. That, that anticipation must be enhanced by mental and spiritual alertness. Train up your minds. Let Christ have control of your thought life. If you want to be mentally prepared. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul tells us about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for, for pulling down strongholds and casting aside arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Don't let the media control your mind. Don't let friends control your mind. Don't let... Popular trends control the way you think. Put your mind under the control of Christ and live your life before Him and let your thoughts be processed by His will. Not only that, in submission to Christ, but our minds need to be in submission to His Word. How much do you filter your mind through the Word of God? The thoughts that you have, the, the priorities that you set. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 1, in that very first few verses there. He said, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the ungodly, or stand in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he or she will be like a tree planted by a river of water. And they'll bear fruit in their season and their leaf won't wither and whatever they seek to do, God will bless and prosper. But be in the Word of God. You see, to be living in anticipation of the coming of Christ and to be ready mentally, your thoughts have got to be 
right thoughts, godly thoughts. And the only way to do that is to make sure that we discipline ourselves prayerfully to come before the Lord and bring before him our thought processes and the deep, deep things that we dwell on and also filter it against the word of God. Why is that so important? Well, one reason I'll tell you. Many of the cults and false religions have preyed on God's people who are ignorant of the Word of God. It broke my heart years ago when I saw a study of the, of the um, proselytizing process of the Mormon church. One of the largest segments of new members in the Mormon church were former Southern Baptists. That broke my heart. They would turn their back on a Bible-believing denomination and go chasing after a cult that promised nothing but damnation. Why? Because they didn't know the Word of God. Called themselves Christians, but were ignorant of the Word of God. Process your mind. Train your mind. Discipline your mind. To be subject to Christ and to the word of God. The apostle Peter issues that stern warning to Christians. Not only should we live in an attitude of anticipation enhanced by mental and spiritual alertness. But our spirits need to be keenly aware of the activity of God. Sometimes we can get so distracted with everything going on in the world around us. We forget that God's still at work. I think Dr. Henry Blackaby in his experience in God's study challenged people to stop and just to consider that God is at work around you every day. And he said, stop and see where God is at work. Jesus challenged us to be aware of the activity of God. Back in Matthew chapter 24, in his own discourse on eschatology, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42, listen to what Jesus said. He said, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour, your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour that the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, verse 44, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. And some character comes up to you and says, oh, we've worked it out. we got a formula. We're pretty sure it's next year, going to be January the 1st. And yeah, brush them off. Pray for them. Because Jesus is sad. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know the day. You don't know the hour. You don't know when he's coming again. Jesus said, that's not the important thing. The important thing is when he comes, you be aware. And you be ready. Because you are watching for the activity of God going on around you. You may recall in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus was praying probably one of the most heartfelt, fervent prayers of his life at a very crucial time just prior to his crucifixion there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was pouring his heart out to God and he told his disciples that inner circle to, to watch and to pray. And, and, and what do they do? Like good Baptists, they fell asleep and Jesus is in there pouring his heart out to the Father. He comes back. Jesus comes back to them and says, watch and pray. 
lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, living with an attitude of anticipation means that we must be spiritually and mentally alert. Our spirits must be keenly aware of the activity of God in these last days. If we are walking in the spirit of God, grounded in the word of God, we'll see God's hand at work around us. And no matter how chaotic and cataclysmic the social and political environment happens to be or economically. Listen, everybody else may be running around like chicken little, but if you are walking with the Lord, you have a sense of stability and steadfastness and you know all it means is Jesus is coming. And so we live here with a spirit of anticipation an attitude of anticipation enhanced by mental and spiritual alertness, but also empowered by what I call scripture-informed and spirit-led praying. Can you say too much about prayer? I say no, but you know what? Based on the interest level and the activity level of most church members across this landscape, they could care less. I mean, you tell people that you're going to have a special prayer meeting and all you're going to do is get together and you're not bringing in a high-powered preacher or you're not bringing in some big gospel singing group, you know, or you're not going to feed them. You're just going to pray. You tell people that today, ladies and gentlemen, and you might as well invite people to a chitlin cleaning. And I'm sorry, those of you from the city can't appreciate that. That's what it amounts to. That's about the interest level when people talk about praying. Yet the Bible talks so much about being in prayer. Peter says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. when We don't even know what to pray for. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't even interpret. Listen, you need the Spirit of God to help you in your praying. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, as Paul is wrapping up that great teaching on the armor of God, he ended up on prayer, the most important part. He says, with all prayer and supplication, pray in the Spirit, in the Spirit. How many of you even are aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit when you're praying? Or do you just launch off into some mindless ritual of words that mean very little? Pray. Paul says pray with prayer and supplication always in the Spirit. And with this in mind, he says be on the alert. Persevere. Pray for the saints. These are desperate times. These are dangerous times. Pray. Let the Spirit help you. In that little book we know as Jude, in verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, and I won't go back there to read, but he tells us in John chapter 14, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, you know, listen, I won't always be with you, but I will send the Helper. 
And He will abide with you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. And not only will He abide with you for every day that you walk on this earth, but the Helper will remind you of the things that I've taught you. He'll remind you what you need to be aware of. He'll remind you what you need to be praying for. One of the first things you ought to do after you confess your sins in praying is say, now Holy Spirit, and it's okay to hold out your hands or up your hands. You're not going to get labeled charismatic. I do that just as a visible reminder. Lord, I'm like an empty cup. How about filling me up? I can't pray appropriately, Lord. I, I need you to guide me as I talk to you. Lead me in communion with you. Try it. Proper praying under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, and informed by the Scriptures. Pray the Scriptures. There's wonderful truths and promises in the Word of God. Lay your hand on that page of the Bible and say, Lord, these are tense times I'm going through. Yet you tell me right here through the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, Philippians and verse 6, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I'll make my request known to you. And Lord, you promised me right here that the peace of God that goes beyond understanding will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. I have good news for you, brothers and sisters. Our God has never broken a promise. Praying in the Scripture, praying led by the Lord, praying, proper praying enhances the believer's anticipation of and preparation for the end through godly living and evangelism. I'm privileged to serve on the prayer strategy team for the Baptist State Convention with Dr. Chris Schofield, an employee he, he serves over that office. And, and we're just tickled because God has providentially worked in the hearts of our leadership of the Baptist State Convention at our request to set aside the Tuesday evening session of the upcoming Baptist State Convention meeting in Greensboro. And on the first Tuesday, I believe in November, I believe it's election night. This has never happened. My 30 years of being affiliated with North Carolina Baptist State Convention has never happened. This is an unprecedented opportunity. But that the leadership has agreed, the program committee has agreed that Tuesday evening, North Carolina Baptists from churches from Manio to Murphy will have the opportunity to stand on the floor of the convention. You will have the opportunity to gather around your pastor and as churches from all across the Piedmont and the coastal plains and the mountains are gathered around their pastors and we're coming before the holy God of the universe and our Lord Jesus Christ in a spirit of brokenness and confessing sin. We're going to cry out towards heaven. Listen, that'll be thousands of Baptists praying for Baptist churches across the state, praying for revival and spiritual awakening. I pray it will shake this state. And set a fire of revival that will sweep across this nation. If there's anything that will save America, it will be a spiritual awakening. It won't be the military and it won't be the economy. But Peter doesn't stop there. Look at verses 8. Verse 8, he says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a, a multitude of sins. What is Peter saying? Christians should engage openly in mutual 
love. Jesus told us that in John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I, I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. He's talking to his followers. As I have loved you, so shall you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I like how Paul puts it over in Colossians. If you want to look over there with me in your Bible, Colossians chapter 3. In verse 12, he's talking to Christians at the church at Colossae, but he's talking to Christians in every church of every era. This is a way that Christians relate to one another. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of, of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Listen, this is the way Christians in the church relate to one another. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But look at verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Peter is telling us as we anticipate the coming of Christ, you make doggone sure that when he shows up, he finds that congregation loving one another in a way that certainly reflects the divine love of God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peter says, as these last days are playing out, with Christ coming at any moment, love one another. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter and verse 22, you may recall where Peter said, since you have been, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. With a pure heart. And then we go back to chapter 4 where we're looking at verse 8. And look what he says again. And above all things, have fervent love. Did he say casual love? Did he say occasional love? Folks, let me tell you. Fervent is fervent. Fervent is zealous. Fervent is passionate. The love you have for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ ought to go far beyond the love that you have for anybody else on this earth. It ought to outshine your love for anybody else, anything else. Well, you say, well, how about my family? Well, you just prayed that they're part of the church. Then they'll get caught up in that. Well, sure you love your family because it starts at home, but in the family of God. But isn't it interesting that Peter quotes out of Proverbs 10, 12, Talking about there in verse 8, love will cover a multitude of sins. In Proverbs 10, 12, it says, hatred stirs up strife. Could I get an amen there? Man, alive. You let people not love one another. You let there be jealousy and hatred and animosity, and there's going to be strife. Amen? Whether it's in the home or in the church or anywhere, but especially the church. But love covers all sins. You see, the divine love of God in us doesn't dig up old sins. It covers up, smooths over. I like how Corrie Ten Boom put it one time. She says, you know, God 
cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Then he puts up a sign saying, no fishing. Don't go digging up. Now you're saying, wait a minute, preacher. It sounds like Peter's saying that the church ought to ignore sin. No, no. He's not talking about sin that hasn't been confessed and repented and dealt with properly through forgiveness. No. He's talking about sins that have been confessed have been repented of. And indeed, forgiveness has been bestowed beginning with God and then the offended party. He's saying those. Love smooths over. True, divine, fervent love doesn't go looking and nitpicking in people's past when their sins are dealt with. How dare you do that? Any Christian, any church member that goes digging into somebody's past to find out sins that they've already taken care of and resolved with God and whomever, shame on you. You're the guilty partner. You're the one that's a tool of the devil. Leave it alone. That's what he says. Love. This kind of love smooths over. Covers all sins. And in the light of the Lord's imminent return, we want to reflect His love for us. He prayed for us that way. Do you remember in that pastoral prayer in John 17, as Jesus, this is before His arrest and crucifixion, He's praying for the church. I said, I love that prayer. To me, it is the Lord's prayer. Because the Lord is talking to God the Father just before He leaves this earth. He's praying for His followers, His followers then, but He's praying for followers now. He's praying for you and me. And He says so beautiful words. He's praying to Father God. He says, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. When Jesus returns this afternoon, or... <laughs> or Wednesday, or next week, or next month, when Jesus returns and He finds Cornerstone Baptist Church, will He see such fervent love? Really? He said, oh, I would, but not everybody else. If everybody else would, I would. Don't wait on everybody else. Take the lead. Set the pace. Demonstrate the initiative. You'd be surprised how contagious love can be. Amen? I said amen? amen. Y'all got me nervous. You're acting like Methodists now. No offense to former Methodists. <laughs> but not only is it expressed through this fervent love that he's talking about, but if you look at verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. How about that? Be hospitable. You know, if you go back, and we don't need to go back because it's the time, but in Acts chapter 2, you remember that first church? I mean, my goodness, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, they, and, and Peter preaching at Pentecost and thousands of people coming to Christ, that church was on fire. And, and, and how did they express it? They expressed it through fervent love for one another, but they expressed it through open hospitality. It says that daily they were gathering together and they were having meals together and they were worshiping together. They were praying together. People were opening up their homes and frying chicken and said, y'all come on in. You know, we're going to have a... Oh, listen, hospitality was the rule of the day. And Peter's saying, be hospitable to one another as you anticipate the coming of Jesus let him find you being expressly hospitable to one another. Listen, this goes way back into the Old Testament. 
You may remember in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham looked out across the plains and he saw three strangers approaching his tent. He didn't get his spyglass out. So I wonder who them strangers are. <laughs> he went back and said, honey, bake some bread. We got, we got guests. Abraham was a very hospitable man. He opened up his home unbeknownst that it was actually the Lord until you know, things started transpiring. The Lord and his two angels were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. But the fact is, he was just a hospitable guy. And down through, even the law made provisions for, law, for, for hospitality for Jews towards, for, towards uh, foreigners, strangers. Be hospitable. We saw that in that first church there. And Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 12, how Christians need to exercise hospitality towards one another. But isn't it interesting that Peter says there in verse 9, be hospitable to one another. In other words, get together, share. And he's not just talking about the event of opening up your house and having a party and entertaining. That's fine. That's, that's an expression of hospitality. Hospitality is a, a state of mind. It's, it's, a, it's a generosity. It's, it's an unselfishness. I, I, let me just read that passage that Paul in Romans chapter 12. Capture the spirit of what Paul is saying here when he talks about this, this kind of hospitality that people exercise. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saint, given to hospitality. That's what Paul says we ought to be doing for one another. And Christians genuinely practice unselfish, unreluctant hospitality. That's why Peter says... Do it without grumbling. You know it's not true hospitality if you're going to be grumbling about doing something for somebody else. It reminds me of the story I heard about this little girl after church. She was all excited. She ran to the pre preacher and she was so excited. She said, preacher, so I know something you don't know. That'll get a preacher's attention. And, and, and she, he said, well, honey, what is it? He said, you're going to come and eat at our house today. He said, oh, that's nice. And she said, and I know something else you don't know. I know what we're going to eat. And he says, you know? And he's going to try to play along. So I bet it's fried chicken. And she said, no. So this buzzard. And he said, buzzard? Are you sure? So yeah, I heard, I heard Daddy this morning ask Mommy if we could have the preacher over to eat. And Mommy says, well, I guess so. We haven't had the old buzzard for lunch in a long time. So be careful how you extend hospitality. Don't do it grudgingly or grumpily, freely. Christians in anticipation of the coming of Christ should engage in openly in mutual love. But finally, I want you to look at the last verses with me. Christians ought to actively employ spiritual gifts. I know sometimes this makes some people nervous talking about spiritual gifts. But it's a biblical fact. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift... And you'll notice he didn't say, as some have received a gift. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as of oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability with which God supplies. 
that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. I won't go back and read extensively, but you know, where Peter gives a brief description of spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul, he just goes right out and just lays it all out there. He gives you a long list of all the different, or many of the different spiritual gifts in, in Romans in chapter 12, and, um, and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll find all, a whole list of, you know, gifts of exhortation, administration, and teaching, and giving, and hospitality, and mercy, and, 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 on, and on and on. Peter categorizes these gifts into two categories, but, you know, a spiritual gift. Understand what it means. A spiritual gift is a divine enablement for ministry in the body given by God. All God's children have, God, have been given by God a spiritual gift, a divine enablement or ability to do ministry in the body, not for their own bragging. It's not so you can sit around and say, man, I got the gift of teaching. Aren't I wonderful? <laughs> I, got the, I got the gift of mercy. Don't everybody just love me? No, you don't. The gifts aren't given so you can wear them as, as some kind of a badge, pridefully. The gifts are given to individual Christians in the body of Christ so that we can exercise our spiritual abilities given to us by God for the benefit of the body. For the edification of the body. Each member's gifts is, a gift is tailored uniquely to them by the Spirit. You serve in the church. It's not the other way around. I remember when I was a young boy, when former President John F. Kennedy was inaugurated, his first his inauguration, and I remember those famous words, and, and I'm sure you are are familiar with those words too. But but it caught my attention when he challenged Americans with these words: "Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." And I, even as a young kid, I was thinking, you know, that makes sense. We don't need to be sitting back and, and, and holding out our hands and said, what can the government do for me? What can the government give to me? What? We should be doing what we can to strengthen our nation and help our citizens by serving. It was a great dream. Challenging words. Well, he said, what does it have to do with the message? Peter's saying the same thing. Don't sit back selfishly. Say, now, I wonder what the church can do for me. Can they feed me? Can they entertain me? Can they, you know, encourage me? Can, you know, what can the church... And people look for churches based on simply that. What can you do for me? Folks, that is so diabolically evil and unchristlike and unbiblical. The attitude that Christians should have is how... Can I use the abilities that God has given me to help my church be a kingdom church for the glory of God? Might I encourage you and me not to worry about what you can't do? You may say, well, I can't teach, or I can't sing, or I can't, you know, do this. Don't! Concentrate on what you can't do. Get on your knees before God. About your head sitting on the sofa. Just get before the Lord and say, Lord, 
Show me what I can do. It may be small, relatively speaking, but in some way, show me how I can help build up my church family. And I'm going to tell you what, that's music to the eyes of the Savior who died for the body of Christ. That's what Peter's saying. As each one has received a gift, that's implied. The imperative is minister it to one another. As good stewards. You don't own that gift. You didn't create that gift. That, you didn't generate that ability. Whatever it might be. I'll tell you who did. God did. He entrusted that to you. With the full expectation that you would be a good steward of that. Just like he expects you to be a good steward of the financial resources that he gives to you. You use it for the edification, the building up of the church. Because when the church is built up, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. God is glorified. And that's our purpose in this life. The whole church mutually benefits from the exercise of these spiritual gifts. And, 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 and as I said, Peter puts them into two categories. Gifts of speaking, exhortation, preaching, prophecy, teaching, all that. And then gifts of service. Some of us are big mouths. Some of us work good with our hands. Hallelujah. Um, some do both. But if you have any confusion or concern or you want to explore what your spiritual gift is, I don't have a magic formula, but I'll be happy to, or any of the pastors would be happy to sit down and, and dialogue with you and we're looking at the Word of God. We can talk about it. You'll be surprised what God will highlight. And I can tell you some wonderful testimonies of people who they just thought there was nothing they could ever do to benefit the church. And lo and behold, they got before, before God with a, a true, humble, seeking spirit. And God revealed things. And, and these people served in significant, unique ways. As all members serve, the church is edified and God is glorified. And in doing so, we are being prepared for the imminent return of Christ. We want to he wants to find you and me when he comes. This evening, tomorrow at noon, Thursday afternoon. I'm just saying, whenever he comes. And it could be any minute, any day. It's imminent. Will he find us as a church living in a spirit of keen anticipation with sharp minds and sharp spirits? Aware of the activity of God. Will He find us on that split moment when He comes back to receive the church? Will He find the members of Cornerstone engaged openly in mutual love one for another? They will know we are Christians by our love. Will He find us actively engaged in our spiritual gifts for the building up of His church for His ultimate glory? Hey folks, make no mistake about it. You may, you may question... Some parts of the message or maybe, you know, my story about the buzzard. But I'll tell you what. You can go to the bank with this. Jesus Christ is coming again. Like a thief in the night. You don't need to worry about plotting, predicting. Jesus told his disciples just before his ascension, it's not for you to know the day or the season. Don't you be preoccupied with that. Don't worry about trying to pinpoint when the... You just be ready. And that's my prayer for Cornerstone Baptist Church. For me, is that indeed we will be ready.
You know that readiness, that preparedness for the imminent return of Christ at any moment? That readiness begins with step number one in that salvation. You see, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a, a true follower of Jesus Christ, and don't forget Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, we're in the kingdom of heaven. There can be a lot of shocked and eternally disappointed people who think they got it set to go. They're not ready. Being ready starts with God speaking to your heart by His Spirit through His Word and informing you that you are a sinner just like everybody else. And the penalty of your sin is eternal separation from God forever and ever in a terrible, hideous place of torment created by God for the devil and the demons but for every person who rejects Jesus Christ. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And when the Spirit of God convicts your heart of that awareness and God floods your soul with faith to believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, that He was the only begotten Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, raised again on the third day, ascended into heaven and coming again. And when God's Spirit convicts you and gives you the faith to say, that is absolutely true, and I am a sinner, and I am sorry for my sins, and Lord, I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I'm turning my back on my sins. I'm turning to you. Done with the sinful, wasteful living. Done with the sinful, wasteful thinking. Done with the sinful, wasteful relationships. I'm following after you. Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, being a Christian, being a citizen of the kingdom of God is not being a part of a religious community club or something like that or some organization. It is a lifestyle that begins the day that you pray to receive Jesus Christ. Christ, and it doesn't end until the last breath leaves your body or you hear that trumpet and you're caught up in the air to meet him in the air. That's what being ready means. I urge you today, if you're blessed to be one of those that God has chosen, and you say, oh, don't come at me with that predestination stuff, preacher. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Before the foundation of the world, God chose, God predestined those whom He would call. I've been called. I'm not bragging. Bragging on God. Thank God. I've never been more grateful for my salvation than I am today. Knowing that there was nothing that Charlie Martin ever did, could ever do to merit the grace of God and have the assurance of heaven. Nothing! God chose me and then He called me and He gave me the faith and praise the Lord I yielded and submitted myself to the will of God and hallelujah I live with the assurance that if the trump should sound this minute I'm ready. Are you? Are you?